everyone. Welcome back to Next Generation Saints. I'm your host, Nick Coons. So, today we're going to be talking about pride and judgmentalism, or grace and forgiveness. This is going to be a topic that I discussed with Pastor Cliff Connectly and his son, Stuart Connectly. Um, and give me an answer. If you are still curious about them, they are pastors over at Grace Community Church in New Canaan, Connecticut. So, I hope that this uh, broadcast um, blesses you. And before I really jump into this thing, it, if you are new here, please, well, you're uh, welcome. This is going to be about Christian apologetics, talk about all sorts of different topics here. And if you can, it would be really helpful for this channel. Go ahead and like and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. That would be super helpful for me. All right, without further ado, give me an answer. This is the most judgmental age we're living in so far, I think it's safe to say. You look at Twitter accounts, you look at any social media account, you look at political subgroups, you look at think tanks, it's pretty scary. Jonathan Haidt wrote a bestseller, The Righteous Mind, and he talks about how every single person is born self-righteous as well as judgmental. And he is an atheist writing this. Pride and judgmentalism is so easily attached to religion because religion is about working towards God. I have to be a better person. I was taking an Uber the other day, and this Uber driver, I'm not going to tell you what religion he was, but he said, I have to work, 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 work towards God, and maybe I'll be able to enter paradise. Maybe. But I have to continue working to be a better and better and better person. Christianity, Jesus Christ came to end all religion. He said, you don't work towards me to try and be a better, better, better person. That's caught up right with the meritocracy that we see in our country today, which is, I gotta make more money to be better than you. I gotta look a certain way with Botox to look more attractive than you. See, it's the merit. It's just, I gotta be better, I gotta be better, and we see that in religion as well. And it turns into judgmentalism if I'm better than you, especially ethically. Jesus Christ comes and he says, no, it's all about grace. You cannot do anything to save yourself. That's why AA is such a successful organization. You see people, you are not powerful enough to pull yourself out of this alcoholism. You need a source from the outside to save you. Came from a Christian organization. That's why you see so much healing in AA. It's the most successful healing support group out there. So Christianity, if we understand it correctly, Jesus came to end religion, the judgmentalism, self-righteousness that you see with the Pharisees. And Jesus came and said, it's God working to you because you can't save yourself. So you better not judge other people. Because who are you to judge? We are all fallen, broken people. So, if God is saying not to be judgmental, but a lot of Christians are judgmental, then, like, is God setting, like, an impossible standard of, like, don't judge other people because we're naturally judgmental? And, like, he just doesn't help us? No, I don't think he's... he's see, this is the whole cheap grace versus real grace issue that was coming up yesterday. Dietrich Bonhoeffer always penetratingly pushed the confessional church and other churches within Nazi Germany, saying you better live out grace and understand also there's a standard that we are to live up to in terms of justice, in terms of ethically living, in terms of loving God and our neighbor more, in terms of standing up to Nazi Germany. And so he said there is cheap grace, which is basically, oh, I, I can say Kieran Knightley, for example, she said, it'd be so easy to be a Christian. I could act one way today, and tomorrow I can just ask for forgiveness and your Jesus will forgive me. So it's such a simple worldview. No, obviously, 
Summer, you're getting at a great point, where there is clearly universal standards that God has set. We have moral obligation. And Jesus came and he said, here's how you live. You live to help the poor. You live to be committed to your family. But ultimately, you live to be devoted to me. So there absolutely is a standard to live more ethically and to grow in the fruits of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22, of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But again, there's no motive. We should never have a motive because of the cross to say, ah, I'm more self-controlled than you, Summer. Who are you? I'm more self-disciplined. I'm a more joyful person than you, so I'm better in my faith. That would be the exact opposite of what Jesus is calling us to in terms of how we live and what standard to live up to. I do have kind of another question that has to do a little bit with that. So you were talking about how God gives us like the like conscience or whatever so that we kind of have the innate um, like sense of guilt whenever we do something wrong. Yep. So what about sociopaths and psychopaths that like never are born with that ability to feel like they did something wrong? Ed Welsh wrote the book, My Brain Made Me Do It. And he is an incredible Christian thinker. But he goes on to say, if you have bipolar, if you're schizophrenic, if you have major depressive disorder, but especially something like bipolar, you have symptoms of extreme irritability and mood swings. And so God's grace absolutely is with you in a unique sort of way because you have a form of certain needs, a form of handicappedness that other people don't. And so God is saying, be careful. You have these symptoms. You were born broken. You have extra grace in many ways because you can't control how you act in certain ways. But ultimately, you still have a free will. And so if, if I go up to a person and say, oh, my mental health made me treat you a certain way. Mom, if you don't give me X, Y, and Z, I'm gonna kill myself because of my mental health. Okay, that's obviously using your mental health as a certain crutch, as a scapegoat in a very manipulative kind of way. I saw a father recently pass away because his daughter kept doing that to him, kept saying, you know what, Dad, if you don't give me this, I'm gonna kill myself. The dad eventually passed away, I believe to alcoholism, I'm not certain, because he kept coming to me and he said, I'm getting controlled. I don't know how to love my daughter and she doesn't love me and I don't know what to do with my life. He passed away, not her. So you see how you can use your mental health in a very abusive kind of way and yet it's connected obviously to, yes, most people get mental health problems between the eight, age of 18 and 24. Most are not born with mental health problems but you can be born with a proclivity to it but usually your cards switch later on. A lot of that has to do with stress. So again, Yes, I believe God gives us extra grace when we have those types of needs and we're born that kind of way, and yet you still have that free will to ultimately choose whether to do good or evil. My old roommate, she really wanted to learn more about Christianity, but her grandparents were Christians, and when she would go to their house like to visit them, her grandma wouldn't let her eat snacks because she would like smack her wrist and say, God doesn't want you to be fat. And so, like, that's the only experience she got with Christians. So how can I help her learn to, like, why should she trust Christians? Good. I was walking with my wife on the Appalachian Trail up in uh, Vermont, and uh, suddenly a guy was walking behind me. And we fell into conversation, and I asked him, uh, what do you think about Islam? 
And this guy says to me, the only thing I need to know about Islam is 9-11. I said, you've got to be kidding me. 9-11 is not an accurate representation of what Muhammad taught. If I'm going to get to know Islam, I've got to go to the source document, the Quran. I've got to read the Quran, and I've got to figure out what did Muhammad teach, how did he treat people, how did he die, and did anything happen after his death of consequence. For me to say, all I need to know about Islam is the terrorists flying jets into the World Trade Center in Manhattan, New York City, on 9-11. That is narrow-minded bigotry. That is so intellectually dishonest, it's scary. Well, what is all equally scary is how many thinking people on this campus reject Christ because of the Crusades, the Inquisition, the witch trials, the hypocritical Christian that they met in church. That is so intellectually bigoted, it is scary. You better have the intellectual honesty and open-mindedness to go to the source document, the New Testament Gospels, and find out how did Jesus treat people? Was he a phony or a fake or a hypocrite? Or did he teach an incredibly high ethical standard and then consistently display the moral power to live up to that standard? And then based on who Christ is, you better reject him as a phony, if he is a phony, or you better put your faith in him because the evidence is he's the truth. Stuart, what do you think? I love your shirt, created by love to love. That's how I would respond to this grandma or mother because she, she again, she's turning towards rules, rules, rules. You better do this or you're going to hell. Now, that's religious fundamentalism, right? Originally, religious fundamentalism was supposed to push back against liberal theology, which basically stripped all the miraculous away and treated Jesus as not his, you know historical savior and Lord, but just as a prophet. So originally, religious fundamentalism was good, but then it got poisoned because it became just religiosity, which is all about you better follow God, you better do X, Y, and Z, or he's just going to throw you into hell. And unfortunately, so many people on this campus buy into that thinking. But we are created by love to love. Where did love come from? It came from the Christian faith, right? It came from, there's neither Jew, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, Greek nor Scythian, slave nor free, female nor male, but we are all created equally to live for something like human rights and to love self-sacrificially. There is no other worldview that says to live self-sacrificially, to actually give up your life for another person and to love that kind of way. See, atheism just sets up a culture of death because it's all just about, you came out, you popped into existence out of nowhere, you're going nowhere, strong may as well eat the weak from an evolutionary perspective, so why ultimately love? And people out here yesterday were saying, all right, fine, I kind of get that, but we are created to live for empathy in a way. I could sort of get on board with that. Sure, tribal groups can have sort of empathy with others so they can somehow live together, sure. But if you look historically, created by love to love, it was the Christian worldview that showed what does it take for God to show you that he truly loves you? It's not the Buddhist way of just you know, staring at your suffering, smiling and saying your suffering is just an illusion. No, it's Jesus Christ dying on a cross for you, saying you have that much worth, that much worth, that I love you that much to show you this love by sacrificing for you in order for you to live and have eternal life. So start there with that mom.
because she's not understanding love firstly. But to help somebody understand that you need to have a healthy diet in order to live longer, yes, Dick and I were talking about this earlier. Dick does 100 push-ups every morning. See, I do think that's worshiping. That's part of worshiping God by doing push-ups because it's saying, God, you've created me and my body to make a difference on this earth for you. I want to live it to your glory rather than just popping Cheetos all day and dying at the age of 60. I've always felt, isn't God's love actually pretty conditional? No. Like on, on you behaving a certain way or particularly not behaving certain ways that some would view as not immoral, such as being gay, right. but God may view as, you know, right. not worthy of salvation. Nobody is worthy of salvation. I am not worthy of salvation. That's what sets Jesus Christ apart from every other major world religion. Every major world religion says, get your act together and be worthy of salvation. And Jesus Christ says, you're never going to be worthy of salvation because you've sinned. Now, grace is God's undeserved, unconditional love, offer of forgiveness for whatever it is that I've done wrong. Now, if I reject that offer of forgiveness because God created the universe and is the ultimate judge, He's going to hold me responsible for the wrong that I've done. That's why, if I reject Christ, I will be judged by God for the wrong that I've done, and I will go to hell and experience separation from God. But if I humble myself and acknowledge, yes, I have done wrong, have mercy on me, a sinner, he promises to forgive me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever, not the good people, not the better people, not the morally superior people. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Does that make sense? Yes. What's but the problem with it? I'm wondering specifically on the issue of sexuality. Because yes. Because I think most people would not feel as though they have done wrong, but is that ignorance? Okay. I'm a heterosexual male, and I have sinned in the area of sexuality. What is sin? Sin is redefining the purpose that God created me for. And specifically, you're raising the issue of sexuality. Well, I have redefined the purpose for which God gave me sexuality. I have lusted. And Christ says, that's wrong. It, why is that wrong? Because it's dehumanizing a woman who's created in the image of God. That is why I have to ask forgiveness for my sexual immorality, which happens to be heterosexual lust. But there are many different forms of sexual immorality. And if I've committed a sin, I need to be honest with myself, honest with God, and ask him for forgiveness for the wrong that I have done. Does that make any sense? Makes sense, yeah. What do you think think about Christ? Um, I don't have many thoughts about Christ. Uh, I am a member of another religion, which I'd probably rather not actually share. Okay. Because I feel like it invites judgment. But um, I think me and you would disagree on where the line is between immorality sexually. I think people have other sexualities, and they do espouse and experience love in the, maybe the way God created them to do. It's yes. just slightly different. Right. All right, first point. Whatever religion you are, I have no option as a follower of Christ but to respect you. Whatever religion you are, as a follower of Christ, I have no option but to love you. Now, sir, if you are convinced that I'm going in the wrong direction and you claim to love me, 
I hope you will inform me. Cliff, you're going in the wrong direction. Watch out. There's a crash at the end of this highway. Don't go there. So, because I respect you, I'm interested, genuinely interested in finding out what you believe and then asking you what's the evidence that whatever it is you believe is true. And then I hope you'll ask me, okay, Cliff, what do you believe? And what's the evidence that whatever it is you believe is true? Okay. See, that's, I would argue that's respectful, intelligent discourse where we actually care for each other instead of just saying, well, I don't care what you believe. That makes sense? Yeah. I've spent most of my life reading Buddhist philosophy. Okay. Um, and I have absolutely no evidence that it's true. It's more me trying to come to terms with the concept of, of death, of nirvana being a true death. On some level, I hope that there is no afterlife. Because this okay. is hard, you know? Okay, all I can say is thank you for your honesty. And I respect you highly. Why? Because you started out by saying, I follow the Buddhist philosophy and I have no evidence that it's true. Man, I wish everybody was that stinking honest, sir. Instead, I got all these atheists standing out here saying, oh, I'm an atheist, and that's the truth. And I'm saying, fine, so what's the truth that you're, what's the evidence that your atheism is true? And sir, they keep on trying to act like, oh, because I've carefully thought this through. When in fact, it's just a knee-jerk emotional response. So first of all, thank you for your honesty. Now, secondly, don't you think that before you trust, don't you think before I trust anybody, there should be evidence of reliability, not proof, but at least we gotta have some evidence that we're not gonna get ripped off, that this is true and reliable. I mean, don't you think that's wise in living your life? Okay, so that's why I would plead with you, read the teachings of Siddhartha Gautama Buddha and ask yourself, what's the evidence that his teachings are true and then I'm pleading with you, read the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and ask yourself, what's the evidence that Jesus Christ is true? Compare and contrast. You see, sir, I'm standing here saying, I've done a bit of studying of Siddhartha Gautama Buddha, and obviously I respect him for the way he struggled through the problem of suffering. I mean, anybody who claims to be a thinking, emotionally connected person, who doesn't deal with suffering in this world, I think is out to lunch. There's too much suffering. So I respect Siddhartha Gautama Buddha for the way he really engaged the issue of suffering. But then there are other things he says that, I mean, how to deal with suffering. It's an illusion. What? I mean, come on. Suffering's not an illusion. It's real. Oh, very real. Yeah. yeah. And it has a cause. Yeah. And they also believe there's a way out of it, you know, a way to more end it. Okay, how do, you, how do you deal with suffering? How do you um, think it through also? Well, I think it's on you to not create it through Good. lust, desire, yep. or, you know, selfishness. Right. Um, but theoretically, you know, if you follow the Eightfold Path, yes. then you will move further up in the chain of reincarnation, and eventually you get to die. And that's, that's a privilege. Okay. So right there I've got, you know, some questions. Why is death a privilege? Because life is hard. Because life is hard. Okay, now from my perspective, you're right. Life is hard. I agree with that. But life is also a blast. Oh, yeah. And I'm real glad that you and I are able to have this conversation right now. I'm real glad that one of us is not dead. I celebrate life. And I think that if you look at your experience, you do celebrate life. That's why 
I have such a hard time accepting Buddhism because I don't think that the goal is death. There's a lot of homies. Yeah. I mean, I think if, if, if you or I get hurt really badly, we're going to get the ambulance, right? We're going to get the best doctor we can to keep us alive. Right? We affirm life. All right, Jesus Christ affirms life like nobody else. He says, God gave you life. I'm the God who gave you life. I love you. I have a purpose for your life now, but I also have eternal life. And that's why I love 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul writes, death is the last enemy. It's not good. It's not cool. It's the last enemy. Because life is good. In spite of the hardship that you and I experience. Is there any hardship in eternal life, in heaven at all? Nope. Yeah. No hardship in heaven. Why? Because God is good. And because God is good, he guarantees there will be no hardship in heaven. Lots of hardship today in this life, no question about it. And I would think that because you are a sensitive, thoughtful guy, you would really take a hard look at Jesus because of the way he suffered. He didn't evade suffering, right? He got in with people who were suffering. He got down and dirty. And then he provides the ultimate solution for suffering, forgiveness in eternal life and in heaven, where there will be no more suffering. And that's why when I go to a hospital and I sit beside the bed of a dying person, yes, I seek to hold that child's hand and comfort that child, but in Jesus Christ, I have a suffering God who provides the ultimate solution for suffering, forgiveness and eternal life in heaven. Does that make any sense? Yeah, definitely. Who defines sin and goodness and justice? And I would argue that if it's you who define it and I, or I who define it, then it is relative. And if he defines it his way and you define it your way and I define it my way, it is relative. And I'm convinced from looking at the abuse of an innocent child that there are some objective morals. And I dare say you would agree with that. Right? Okay. Well, if there are objective moral standards, there's got to be some type of mind prior to the human mind that creates and defines those standards. That would be God, whoever God is. I can see that. You can see that. Okay, good. Now, Jesus Christ claimed to be revealing this God, this intelligent mind, this just creator, in a way that you and I as personal beings can connect with. Now, obviously, he's either full of it, an egomaniac, or else he's true. God revealing himself in finite form in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's why I think it's so important for you to read the Gospels for yourself and ask yourself, does the evidence point to Christ being a quack? If it does, reject him. Or does the evidence point to Christ being the truth? If it does, put your faith in him. Does that make any sense? Yeah, definitely. Well, it's a real honor talking with you, sir. And thank you so much for your honesty and, uh, and vulnerability. I appreciate that a lot. How do we differentiate hardship and suffering from work? Because from what? From work. Work. Okay. In heaven, at least to my understanding, you'll still be living in a in a world where you work, right. and you still have like a daily life to perform. Yes. And so I'm asking, where do we draw that line between suffering and work? Because, in a sense, work is overcoming problems that lead to suffering. In a sense. 
in this world, yes. <laughs> Part of that would be true, I would think, yeah. So work, work in this world mostly is problem solving. Okay. And often that's a stressful and hard process. Uh -huh. So how do we differentiate work from hardship in heaven? Very thoughtful question. Stuart, what do you think? Well, it's interesting. This is very new, at least that I've heard of. A lot of students out here in the last two days have talked about how, how can you have eternal bliss and perfect human flourishing in heaven if there is no suffering? Because so many students out here talk about you get happiness by growing in resiliency and character post-suffering. I find that fascinating because there's a lot of truth to that in psychology and other studies. But my response is work will be fully redeemed. Let's be real. There's this beautiful story by J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote Lord of the Rings. It's called Leaf by Niggle. It talks about how this guy keeps trying to get to this tree. The tree is really growing itself. And the tree is working hard, working hard, but can never fully get to the point of being a beautiful tree. And J.R.R. Tolkien is connected to heaven in the sense of this tree is striving, 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 but ultimately it won't be able to reach its perfect point it's perfect even purpose for why it existed until heaven. So is there a level of striving and pain in work today? I, I hope that's true for just about anybody because that's how you get ahead. But that will be fully redeemed just like relationships in heaven. And that has been my response to everybody who's talking about, you know, how do you not have suffering in heaven? You need it in order to grow in happiness. My response is how one author put it. Heaven is going to be, in relation to work and our relationships, like a clogged pipe, finally unclogged. So we get pieces of heaven here on earth, but that pipe will be fully unclogged, and everything, our work and relationships, will be perfected. Does that kind of answer your question? Or? Yeah. It's a good question. Thanks for asking it. Yes? Would you say that, would you say that death is a privilege? As in, what I mean by that is, would you say, like, like death is a part of life, but would you say that for humans, it is a privilege to die? So from my worldview and perspective, death is the greatest enemy. It's the greatest enemy. I, I think if we're honest with ourselves, nobody wants to look at the dinner table tonight if they're with their family and really reflect on every single person at this dinner table is going to be painfully ripped away from this planet, from our ability to see each other and have relationships that we've experienced all life long. See, what we want to do is we want to deny death, not think about it in our culture, that's one way, or we want to fully naturalize it. And so you have a book like Nothing to Fear that came out about death. Nothing to fear. Or you have Ricky Treves, the great comedian, who I do enjoy, strong atheist, who said, hey, look, 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 I, I can't do his British accent, I'm not even going to try. But he said, hey, look, we came into existence. Through billions of years, all of a sudden we popped into existence. And then we're going to pop out of existence. So why does death matter? It doesn't matter. It's going to be totally natural. We just popped into existence. We're going to pop out after billions of years. Okay, look, I think that worldview is hilarious. I think it's miraculous to say somehow we just pop into existence from nothing. Nothing created us. And boom, poof, we're here. And then poof, we're done. So he says, don't worry about death. Totally natural. Going to be comfortable. That's a lie. I don't care how much modern medicine we have. Every single person I see and counsel and with 
death is not painless. It is tremendously painful, and they're being ripped from their relationships. So the Lion King idea of this cycle of life, we just turn to grass, and then the next person comes around, turns to grass. This, the, the circle of life, man, and you can look at it and say, oh yeah, that's beautiful in one way, but let's be honest, death is the greatest enemy. No one really enjoys death, personally, the suffering that comes from it, before, and then also, we want relationships to last forever, do we not? With our closest friends and family. Good question. I'd like to invite you to Grace Community Church, located at 365 Lukeswood Road in New Canaan, Connecticut. Our services are at 9.30 a.m. and 5.30 p.m. on Sundays. Hope you can join us. Welcome back to Next Generation Saints. I'm your host, Nick Coons. I hope you really enjoyed this episode of Give Me an Answer by Cliff and Stuart Connectly. Again, if you haven't already done so, go ahead and like and subscribe to this podcast so you get more great content heading your direction. So, until next time, we meet again. May God richly bless y'all, my dearly beloved. <laughs>